The one thing with activism is, and I always, maybe I, I'm just realizing, I'm like, am I a devil's, uh, what is that thing called? Like yeah, advocate? I, am I a devil's advocate? <laughs> I think you might be a devil's activist, maybe. Activist, I yeah, I might <laughs> yeah, be a devil's, a devil's activist. activist. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Welcome to Sport Talks with Sport Profs. I'm Prof Walls. I'm joined here tonight with Prof Joe and Dan, the coach Berlin, as well as Chelsea Vern, who is our social media expert. This is a online community to socialize, talk issues, put a little bit of an academic spin on our talk, and of course, just get together and have some conversation. I think it's really important for us tonight to also acknowledge that it is Martin Luther King Day. It's actually quite relevant to today's conversation because this is where Martin Luther King, the day was created specifically for him in 1986, where President Reagan was honoring his day for his right to protest, peaceful protest, peaceful speech, peaceful action, and all in the manner of civil rights, creating equality for everybody, no matter your race. So this is really exciting for us tonight to have Kirk Walker. Welcome, Kirk Walker. Martin Luther King was known as an advocate, a leader, um, specifically in the civil rights movement, and again, advocating for equal rights. Today, we're going to be talking a lot about what you do in terms of advocating for equal rights in the LGBTQ plus community and coaches in general. So welcome to Sport Talks. Well, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honored and uh, super excited. And I don't know what to expect, but I'm super excited and ready to, uh, to be an open book. Well, we listen, you've got a really good uh, group here tonight. We want to have a conversation, debate, discussion with you, but we also have students here that are going to be asking you a number of questions and also learning from you. So coming out as gay in 2007 in the NCAA Division I, you have been called a community builder, an irreplaceable pillar, a connector, a role model. And also some nice things that people have said about you is you lift them up, you advocate and you lead. So with that being said, I'm actually this evening going to pass it over to coach and he's going to start off with a number of questions for you. And, and again, do the best that you can. We, we want to hear from you. We want to hear your perspective and we'll jump in uh, if we want to share our perspective as well. And then of course, there's a chat there for students. If students want to jump in and share any questions or ask you specific questions. Okay, Kirk, sound good? Wonderful. Sounds All right, great. Over, over to you, Dan. Kirk, what a pleasure to have you here. And listen, I, I mean, I, I take on the moniker of, of the coach here on the show as somebody who's professionally trained as a coach and has coached softball and baseball for 20 years myself. It, it's a great honor to have this opportunity to have this conversation with you. And I think to start off this conversation, is just to get a little bit of a background in terms of why you got into coaching. Um, you know, we sort of had an opportunity to talk beforehand where you referred to co coaching as more of a calling than a profession. Maybe you could tell yeah. us more about that. Yeah, you know, I, I was really fortunate. I, I got into coaching because my younger sister, who was two years younger, was really good at softball and, and was starting to get recruited and uh, play on bigger teams and travel ball teams. And, and I just had this great affinity for being around it. And um, the reason that it was so intriguing to me and the thing that I fell in love with softball was that it really is an individual sport that is disguised as a team sport, right? Um, so it's that intricacy of working as an individual and being the best version you can of yourself when you step to the plate or you're 
a pitcher and you're throwing a pitch, but yet you do it under the guise of being in a team. So I, I really fell in love with that environment. And then for me, the thing that hooked me the most was to see an athlete gain some kind of knowledge or experience or a skill. And then the empowerment that came from that, that you could see in that individual was just addicting to me. So it was addicting to me to empower others, um, to be better, to be quicker, to be more efficient, to be more effective, to compete at a higher level. So for me, I really got into coaching long before I was ever playing competitively. So for me, it was a different experience. The coaching wasn't about me. It was really about elevating the athletes I was around. And that drove my passion all the way to uh, me entering at UCLA and and getting connected as a manager with UCLA. And then uh, literally by my junior year, I was an undergrad assistant coach and hired full-time when I graduated. I had the opportunity med school, neurophysiology, or coaching. And clearly, I didn't take the financial lucrative path. Um, I went into coaching because, again, um, it was not necessarily a career move. It was, it was a calling for me. And I knew that that's where my passion and my heart was. Yeah, and I'm sure even, you know, when we talk about richness, you know, the amount of richness you've had working with your athletes over the course of a very successful career to this point, um, you can't always put a monetary sum on that. And I wanted to say, you know, you've been with UCLA, to say the least, it's been a very successful run, been a part of seven national championships, including 2019 with the women's softball team. Uh, You know, you talk a little bit about empowerment. So how do you empower your athletes? Well, I think it's an interesting journey. Obviously, you know, we look at our athletes not only in a small um, window of this year, like from fall to the spring when our championships are held, but we also look at over a four-year period of time at at the collegiate ranks. And for me, um, I've coached internationally with the Olympic team and the national team as well, then that's an even longer journey, right? So you, you have to make sure that you're looking at how you're advancing that athlete in that frame of time that you're looking at. For me, empowerment comes from giving real life challenges to our athletes. And we really, honestly, we really want them to fail. Um, Your greatest growth comes from their failures. So we want to make sure that we're challenging them. We want to make sure that we're pushing them beyond where their, their level has been. And in doing so, the only way to empower somebody is not just to keep beating them up, but is to give them the tricks or the tools or the mental capacity to then overcome that same situation again when it comes at them. So we talk daily about it's not necessarily failure um, when you fall short, right? It's only failure if you fail to learn something from it and advance forward from it. So creating adversity as uh, on the athletic field is really what we do, but it translates to life, right? Because um, we need our athletes to be resilient, to learn quickly, and to then adapt to be more successful. And if I can do that effectively, then that's where the empowerment just starts to just really lighten up. And um, you can really start seeing it in an athlete in their confidence, but also just their engagement and their excitement to be motivated out on the field every day is not that it's going to be easy and not that I'm always going to be perfect, but that I'm always going to be moving forward and gaining from whatever happens. That's really, that's a really fascinating approach to it. And it's, you know, building them up by giving them opportunities to fail. Could you be even more specific as to an example of what failure might look like for one of your players? Yeah, well, like even, uh, you know, for example, today in, in our, we had uh, batting practice today and I could have very easily thrown fastballs at them down the middle and they would have 
probably hit, you know, 50, 60 home runs in, in you know, 45 minutes of batting practice. But that doesn't do anything other than just prove that I'm good and I can hit a ball out, right? So in turn, I'm on the field and I'm competing with them. I'm throwing drops and curves and trains and rise, up, rise balls. And I'm actually really challenging to try and get those hitters out. And when I do, um, I don't make them feel bad, but I'm hoping that if I got you out on this pitch last time, that boy, when you step into the box next time, you're prepared for it and you're going to make an adjustment. So we want them, like I said, to have adversity in our training, but always with the understanding that there's some way to move forward or there's a, a standard that we can get to. The one thing that, uh, that I'll say also, empowerment really, you have to have a goal. You have to have a standard that you're trying to attain. And in, in sports, it's perfection, right? And the pursuit of perfection is really fantastic. It's only if you feel like failing or not being perfect is going to be a problem that it really holds you back. But I'm always striving to do it the best I can. And um, so keeping standards high and then challenging them with adversity and then giving them tools. Yeah, no question. I mean, I think it's fascinating because it, it really comes down to, you know, you need to get the buy-in. So having that standard, something you're trying to get yep. to, translates into something that's understandable. But I agree with you, too. I think empowerment also encompasses and embodies the idea of the athlete having some say in terms of what they want their outcome to be, in, of mm -hmm. course, with the guidance of a good coach, in conjunction with also holding them accountable. Right. To right. having that decision. Like, talk a little bit maybe about how you utilize goal setting and a player driven accountabilities, maybe as part of your coaching strategy. Yeah. You know, an interesting exercise that I, I brought back with me when I came back to UCLA, but it was an exercise that I learned, um, you know, 20, 20 years ago. And then I saw it play out at the Olympic level as well. And, you know, you take any group of athletes, um, male or female, but you take any group of athletes and put them together and have a basic conversation about, Here's where we are. Here's the end of the season. What are some things that we want to accomplish on that journey? Whether it be, you know, a four month season or it be a 12 month season, whatever it may be. But during that journey, they've all been athletes. What is it that you want to walk away with? What's important to you? And it's really, it's a fun exercise in having your entire team really create a list that can be as, there's no wrong answer, right? If you have a thought, throw it up there on the board, throw it up on the board. And you've got long lists of things. And obviously you have you win the national title or win a state championship and you have, you know, be undefeated. You have all of those normal goals that you would think you're going to see in athletics, right? It's pretty straightforward, but you're also going to see a lot of things about um, getting along, having fun, um, you know, enjoying the process, staying loose. Um, you're going to have all of these other things that are a little bit more intangible as, as goals, right? We as coaches want attainable, hard fact goals, right? Did you succeed or not? But what we know in athletes is that not everything is so black and white with attainability. And so we take this exercise, create this master list. Then we give them all, you know, take the little uh, dots we all have. And, you know, we have them in our desk drawers at work, right? They're, they're all the different colorful dots. We don't know what we do with them, but they're there for folders or whatever. Sure. But you take them to your team and you give every one of them five and you say, okay, each one of you go up and you put the dots by the five that are the most important to you. And you just let them do that freely. Let them go up there. And um, we as coaches stay out of it. And it's going to be really interesting. You're going to start to see, there's going to be this like really accumulation. You might get to down to probably 
I would say probably usually six or seven that are pretty much in the same ballpark. And then you give them one more special gold dot and you say, okay, you now have the ability to do your superpower, right? Which is the one of these six or seven that you absolutely believe needs to be there. Um, and you had them add that to the list. And it, the goals for the team become very clear very quickly. The buy-in, the interesting thing is we as coaches might be looking at the list saying, oh my, pick, pick the fourth one, pick the fourth one, pick the third one. Like <laughs> we have an opinion, right? We, we know what we want. Sure. But if you can let go of that as a coach and let them really tell you what they want to accomplish, it's really powerful and it's really empowering. How we as coaches use that information, we've got to make sure that every day we're talking about their goals. I may have additional goals as well, and that's okay, but I'm going to use their goals to get my goals accomplished, right? Versus I'm going to impose my goals and I'm going to ignore what they said. Oh, that's um, really that the difference between transactional and transformational coach. Right. And, and for those listening, you know, this idea of the old school coach would say, okay, do this and do it the way I tell you to do it and do it harder, do it better, do it faster. Well, you know, I mean, and Kirk, I'm sure you, you recognize in today's day and age, the athlete today just doesn't really respond as well to that. So the yeah, magic I, and of what you're describing is how you get the buy-in. Sorry, go ahead. 100%. And as a feed right off of that, the interesting thing that I learned is that, yes, you think when you're going to do this with a 12U rec team, you think, oh, have fun is going to always be in there, right? They're 12. They want to have fun. Here's the thing. Almost inevitably, every single time I've done this, and I did this with the Olympic team. So this is the Olympic gold medal team. Have fun was in their top five. This is Olympians. And having fun is still in their top five of their goals. So if it's good enough for the Olympians, then it's certainly good enough for us at the high school level or the collegiate level or the travel ball level. Sure. Having fun almost inevitably will be in there in some way, shape or form. And it's, well, it's really astounding to watch. I love that too. And you know, there's a few different ways one might even define what fun is. And you can- Absolutely. Like being fun isn't being a slacker and, and not coming prepared and everything else. That's, that's right. the opposite. Fun, fun right. comes from, from, you know- Well, and you, hopefully, hopefully you have athletes that um, are somewhat competitive and winning and having success and enjoying the process is fun, right? So making the process fun is, is an important part of that. And, yeah, I, um, I totally yeah. agree. Because winning, winning is fun, but winning is the result of the process. So if, mm -hmm. if winning is fun, the process better be fun and then you put it together. And you yeah. know, I, a mentor of mine and actually the former director of athletics uh, for Ryerson University, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Ivan Joseph, recently came out with a very similar approach. I'm fascinated, really, Kirk, with what you just shared, this idea of goal setting where he said, on a personal coaching level, Asking people and recommending, come up with your top 25 goals for each person every year, maybe in January as you're making New Year's resolutions. But here was an interesting twist, and you might appreciate it. And I also want to know, because I'm interested, as your, as your uh, player athletes, uh, student athletes chose the six or seven. I'll get to it, what they did with the, what you did with the other 18 or 19. <laughs> That's interesting. So what Dr. Ivan Joseph talked about, and this was fascinating, as he said, come up with a list of 25, and it's not easy to do. I mean, it's comprehensive, and yeah. they're your choices, or with the guidance of your teammates and coaches. He said, then choose five. So very similarly, it becomes clear what your top five choices are, and 
And listen, right. if you've come up with it, then in theory, you're invested. But what he said next was interesting. He said, the other 20, ignore completely. Now, I'm not saying you can always do that when it comes to a softball team in pursuit of a national championship, but he said the energy that's taken if you diversify yourself too much will then be at the expense of your top five, or in this case, six or seven, and it could actually compromise the ability to meet the key goals on your team. So the question for you is, Kirk, what do you do with those other 19? Well, you know, I think, uh, but I think you, you you stated it perfectly, and that's exactly it, is that you can't get caught up into what was on the list that didn't make the top five. If you as a coach can't let go of that, you're, you're going to have a hard time keeping that team unified, motivated, and moving forward. And it is. It's wasted energy. Now, there are plenty of things that I may have as a coach that are really top priorities. I just need to make sure that I'm not professing those to be more, as I said earlier, not more important than their five. It just can be something that's important to me and I'm making sure that their five are being attained. And then ultimately I know I'm going to get what I want, but I, I do think it's really important to not get distracted by what else was on the list. You know, you don't say this is our highest standard, but we'll settle for these. Like they're just no longer your focal point. And um, you will still attain a lot of those things. For example, you know, winning, Winning the Pac-12 title, um, it might be one of our goals. Or going undefeated, right? One of our goals this year, they said they want to be undefeated. Well, that's great. Well, it didn't make the top five. It doesn't mean that they're not still striving for that for winning every ball game, right? It's still there. It's just not the thing that's really driving them every day. And so we got to remember that just because it didn't make the top five doesn't mean that it's not important or that it may not even be something that happens. It just isn't going to be what we're using on the daily to keep our team aligned. And you talked about it just a little bit, which is my goal as a coach is not necessarily to make sure I make all the calls, but I make sure that all 25 of us are moving in the same direction, right? We're all committed to the same goal and the same direction. Because if three of our players on our team said, well, we really like the fourth, the, the other, the eighth one that was on there. And that's really important to us. And we're not going to buy in to the other five because we didn't get our way, right? We didn't get what we want. And so now you're going to have athletes that are all going in different directions, right? And the arrows are all pointing, the vectors are all pointing in different directions, not to get scientific. But my goal is to align the vectors, right? We're going to be much more powerful and effective if our vectors, each one of our 25 athletes are aligned in a single direction. And if the season calls upon it and we have adversity, we might need to ebb and flow and change direction, but we're going to do it together because this is where the interesting dynamic in our sport as baseball and softball, we're an individual sport, right? I can have an individual athlete that has really strong personal goals about their batting average and their strikeout to walk ratio and the number of home runs they hit or whatever it might be. Those are very individual goals that motivate you. But those goals, once again, never can take precedent over the team goals. Um, right. And so it's keeping that very clear. And listen, in a perfect scenario, everybody gets what they need and gets to eat and personal goals and team goals. But, you know, I think the, the C word, the culture word is what you're describing, right? This idea of a buy-in and getting everybody moving in one direction and doing it, you know, in a positive way. I'm interested to hear a little bit more just in terms of cultivating culture. I think we, we've sort of delved yeah. into that certainly from this standpoint of goal setting. Maybe you can embody 
why culture is just so important. But also, you know, we hear a lot about team chemistry and understanding some of those subtle and not so subtle differences that exist between the two. Yeah, I, I love this question. And thank you for asking this, because this is something I'm very passionate about. So when I was first getting out there and lecturing on, on the lecture topics and, and things out there in coaching world, I was often asked to talk about team chemistry or team culture, either one, they were interchangeable and, and they were at talking about, talk about that. And I'm like, I don't know how to talk about that. I don't know what that is. Like, I only know what I've lived. I haven't lived without culture. So what I did learn over time when I moved to Oregon State and I took over a program that was, you know, uh, literally was 293rd in the country out of 300 teams. And how am I going to compete in the Pac-12 with that team? And what I realized is that my first number one goal is, yes, I'm going to make them better. I'm going to improve their skills. But most importantly, I'm going to get them aligned. And that's when I started to realize what team culture is. I also learned very quickly that team chemistry and team culture, two very extremely opposite spectrums. Team chemistry means your girls or your athletes, or if you're coaching men, obviously, uh, whatever age group you're co coaching, they get along, they have fun, they get along, they enjoy each other's company. That's team chemistry, right? That's just, that takes no effort. It either is there or it's not. But you could have poor leadership so that, yeah, we're having fun and we're making all the bad decisions, right? We're staying out late together. We're having fun, but we're staying out late. We're cutting curfew. We're, you know, not eating right. We're doing all these things that are bad decisions, but we're having fun together while we're doing it. Well, that's team chemistry, right? So team chemistry, you have no control over, right? And you know what? Team chemistry is not required to have team culture. It helps and it's nice, but it's not required. I don't necessarily need my teammates or my team, my athletes to be best friends with each other, but I do need them to be when they step on the field to be aligned with where we're going as a unit. And when they walk off the field, yeah, I want them to respect their teammates, but I don't care if they hang out and have fun and have great chemistry or not. It really is not important to me. Like I said, if it is there, then great. We love that. But it, team chemistry can also be your, um, your nemesis because you may have half your team that has great chemistry and they don't get along with this other half. And now all of a sudden you have this divergent because of chemistry that's now affecting your team culture. So my answer is not to make them all best friends and have great team chemistry for everybody. My goal is to say, start minimizing the focus on the chemistry and start focusing on the, the, the common mission, the common goals, where we're going together and what we're trying to attain together. Because when I step on the field, the person standing to the left and the person standing to the right are the most important person in the world in that moment. But when I leave the field, the person to my left and right might not be those same people. And that's okay. And that's okay. It is too. And I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, I had an opportunity back in 2017 to, as the head coach of the men's open McCovey softball team. And it was, it was an incredible group. And I would say from a team chemistry point to your, to your point, not everybody absolutely was best friends. Like we were all there on a mission. We were all there to win the gold medal that year. And that was a, a unifying goal for all of us. I had two of my players decide to skip out on the opening ceremonies. And it, it created an early rift on our team because it was like, well, if they aren't going, why should I be going? And, and just sort of, again, to your point, I recognize I can't, I'm not in the business of making people best friends here. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you're trying to do it where, hey, we need to kind of find a way to move forward. And the way we are going to move forward is to focus on the reason why we're here. And the reason why we're here is, is to perform on the field and make yeah. that our focus. All that being said and told, it all really came together. We did win the gold medal in dramatic fashion and, and the rest the rest is history. Maybe had we not won it all in extra innings on a game-winning hit, then you know maybe we'd be looking back and saying, oh, but you know, I guess winning has a way of curing everything. Hey, just before we segue, and I got time for one more question before I kind of hand it over to Laurel and, and we keep this amazing conversation going, Kirk. But I imagine you are looking for a certain type of athlete. And, um, you know, Chelsea, our esteemed producer here, actually just sort of included this question. And it's a great question. You know, what do you look for in an athlete? And because I'm sure you have a pretty clear idea of, you know, what a winning athlete looks like on and off the field, in the classroom, yeah. in the field. What are you looking for? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And again, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate today, and I was very fortunate for many years when I was at UCLA, that we were looking at the already the, you know, the top um, tenthinals, you know, percentage, like we are looking at the elite of the elite of the elite, but who in that group do we really look at? And so for us, it was never about the skill because we were already looking at the best of the best. It really came down to who did we see interacting with their teammates? How did we see them interacting with their coaches? How did we see them handle, again, failure? Um, so if I go out to recruit, I don't necessarily, I already know that this kid is, you know, phenomenal talent. So I don't need to go see that she hits a home run every time she steps to the plate. I kind of want to see how she handles it when she strikes out with the game-winning run out there sometimes, because it might happen. And um, she might come up to an adverse situation. And to see how an athlete responds is resilient. Um, those are some characteristics that I think are very intangibles that you look for. Now, flip that. When I go to Oregon State and I'm trying to build this up, right, I am going to go find the highest talent I can because talent is important, right? I do want to recruit the elite talent. But once I know that I have this elite talent, I don't want to ever jeopardize my program or my ability to have good, healthy culture because an athlete is super talented. And it kind of, this kind of leads us to the next conversation, which is about social justice or about um, strong opinions, right? Bringing people together that are very diverse, right? Politics, socioeconomic background, religion, uh, racial background, again, LGBT status or, or thoughts on LGBT rights. You're bringing a lot of people together. And if I'm bringing somebody into the mix that is so rigid in their thinking that they are not able to have conversations in a healthy manner with peacefully, without emotion and anger, then that's a little bit of a red flag to me. And is that going to help my team culture? If I bring in an athlete, um, and I'll turn this around. Um, sorry, I'm just, I'm going off on this conversation. But when I was recruiting an athlete and I first came out and I came out in the fall of 2005. And when I came out, my, one of my big concerns is what's the conversation going to be like now when we're recruiting? And sure enough, what I definitely found pretty quickly is that if I was pretty authentic in who I was and I, I didn't run around with the rainbow flag on um, or even run around with a shirt on, I, I was just authentically me. But what I found was what there was people that had conversations. And if there was a parent or an athlete that was really concerned about my LGBT you know, sexuality and my ability to be authentic, and they had a real concern with it. Do I really want that athlete in my program anyways? Because this is just one topic, this is just one area. 
But this athlete might be so consumed with these things, these differences, that they're not able to really be aligned with the focus of the team goal. And so it doesn't matter how talented they are, how home runs they hit, or how many strikeouts they can, they can throw, that athlete isn't going to contribute to our overall mission as a team. So I never want to sacrifice the team for talent, right? I always want to recruit the best talent I can and never sacrifice what we're about as a team. So I don't know if that helps answer Chelsea um, a little bit. It's such an amazing answer. And, and just before I, Laurel, I, I send it over to you to keep this conversation going about authenticity, which is sort of where we want to kind of go next and empowerment. It's just this idea that, you know, if you, when you talk about what a toxic culture can look like, because I've been there on a team and I'm sure even at Oregon State, you weren't maybe blessed with always having the choice of the elite of the elite athletes. So do you take the better player or the one who's gonna help you create the better culture. And I've, I've made that mistake and I vowed I would never ever make that mistake again. So this idea about how character um, is really like the ultimate selling point. And it's one of the things you can't teach. It's mm -hmm. the hardest thing to teach, teaching attitude. You can't see growth in young players, but talent skills you can develop. Oftentimes, like you say, like what you're looking for, it can be a very inherent be the difference between having a, a truly winning culture and not just on the scoreboard but every day yeah. coming out and doing yeah i mean i think i think you're spot on i think you know while you can't necessarily teach character i i think you can you can mold it and you can reveal it i don't think any one person is locked into a stagnant position with their character but i think that's where high standards and clarity of high standards becomes a, a very easy guideline to say look I understand you have your own individual thoughts here and that's that you have that right and you have that choice to believe as you believe, but understand our standard is here. So if you can't get to our standard, this might not be the place for you. I'm just letting you know, you're probably gonna struggle and be a little unhappy because your standard isn't to where we want it to be. So I talk about standards, people talk about standards as being the roof of, of your um, organization. And for me, it's the floor, right? It's the baseline. So if we have athletes that their character and their work ethic is, and they're living in the basement, right? They haven't got their standards up to the first floor, which is where we want to start, then that's going to be a problem, right? So if we can understand that a lot of our athletes all come from different family backgrounds, they all eat at the table differently. They speak to their parents differently. Some have, you know, are ingrained with manners. Like everybody comes around in it with a different set of mores as who they are. And that's okay. But through our process with standards, we can then start to say, look, here's the standard we are at. We're not planning on moving this. So if you don't feel like you can get there, then let's, let's don't beat our heads against a wall. Let's make a change. <laughs> but I do believe you can get there. And I do believe I can help you get there. And the standards can help you get there. So I'm going to be committed to that. And that's where I, I think I was talking to you about on our previous call, Sometime around their junior year, all of a sudden we see a lot of light bulbs going on, right? The freshman year, they don't know any different. They're just running around like this and they're just, oh, they're getting in trouble nonstop constantly, right? Their sophomore year, oh, they know what's right and they know what the standard is. So now they have to make some more decisions, but they're not really fully convinced all the time. But all of a sudden by their junior year, you often see this, all of a sudden the light bulbs go on and go, oh, yep, nope, that's where we are. And freshmen, sophomores get lined up, let's go. So if you can start to understand that your freshman and sophomore shouldn't be holding your culture high, 
they are the ones that are learning the culture, right? But your juniors and seniors are absolutely paramount. And if by the time they get to their junior, senior year, if they're still the ones that are making the bad decisions and pulling the team in the wrong direction, there's a red flag. You got a uh, problem. A yeah. and you know, I just, uh, I think that it really speaks to the coach and the teacher because you're right. Like you don't always want to judge a book by its cover and you need to ask questions and be very clear. It's about clarity too, being yeah. clear and consistent in your messaging. So yeah. Laurel, I'd like to kind of invite you a little bit in on the empowerment question, because obviously Kirk is, is doing a lot of very special things, but when it comes to empowering women, I know this is an area also passionate to you, Laurel, so please. Yes, thank you, Dan. And uh, before we go there, if you don't mind, I just wanna uh, address a comment in the chat that's from Prof Joe here that says, hasn't team chemistry always been used as a reason why LGBTQ plus athletes have been discouraged from coming out? Um, you know, because it could upset the team chemistry. This has been one excuse that he's heard. Can you address that? Yeah, I think that, I think that's, but I also think that that's an internal fear that an athlete has, right? Like, so when I was figuring out about coming out, it's like, I don't want to disrupt our chemistry. Like I like what's going on. I like where we're at. So I don't want to be the, the attention either. I, I do believe that that is a very, very powerful part of why we don't see so many pro athletes coming out. Cause it's not always just the financial fears. It's the fears of, Hey, I want to be here for the team. It's about the team. I don't want to draw attention to myself for something that's, you know, something that I haven't earned. Right. right it's just something I am. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be a, 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 like, although I I'm looking at it differently and, and Joe and I and Dan have had this conversation before Joe has a show uh, or it ran an episode and he's got a brand called out on air where we've had people speak who are out on air. And, and, and because my thought on this is you're not, what are you disrupting? What, what sort of chemistry are you disrupting? Yeah. You're saying I am gay. What does that disrupt? Yeah. Well, this is the interesting thing. And Laura, I think this is a, I love this conversation because what we have found and what we have seen and I've been very fortunate to be around a lot of coaches and athletes that have come out in the last you know, 15 years since I came out. And that's where a lot of my work is. What we consistently see time and time again, when an athlete or a coach reveals something deeply personal and is vulnerable around their teammates, we often see that the team chemistry becomes tighter and more connected and more athletes on the team feel safer with all of their insecurities. Here's a fact. Every single one of us is insecure about a lot of things in our life, right? With things we don't want people to know. When I was five, I did this, or I wet my bed, or like, there's things that we're all insecure about. So when somebody shares something deeply vulnerable like that, it creates a, a connection with your teammates and a bond that is even tighter. So we often see when it, while it does keep people or the it's used against people coming out. But what we do see is when somebody does come out, we tend to see that team or that athlete go to a whole nother level than they ever have. Mm -hmm. The year I came out in 2005, we were good. We were already good. We won the Pac-12. So we were good, but we had never made the college world series. I came out in the fall of 2005 with one of the most talented teams we've ever had. So there's a lot of risk here. Like we're, already, we're rolling. We're like, we're going, why am I going to disrupt this? And I came out for specifically this reason, Laurel, is that I did not want my team to hear about my sexuality through rumor or through anyone else. I was going to go into the adoption pool with my partner, 
and I knew that it was going to be a little bit more public. I wasn't hiding it, but I just wasn't sharing it. But I had talked to my team at nauseum building that culture about being having the integrity and having the authenticity to be who you are and to live life that way. And I've asked them all to be vulnerable with their teammates so that we can be a unit and be a family. Mm-hmm. And here I would be sharing this amazing secret and I, they heard about it from somebody else. And I and thought, yeah. wow, fair I was enough, gonna I, lose. Yeah, yeah I was gonna enough, lose. I, I agree, I agree with that for sure. When you're that close with the team that you wanna make sure that they, they hear from it first. And that's also about trust and about building that integrity with the team. I wanna go back though, because this is such a complex, it's been made complex, but it shouldn't be complex. Let's put it that way. That's, that's my take on this. What's the complexity that I'm having with this is that, and I, I like what you're saying. I'm not, I'm actually, don't take this as me challenging you. This is actually for, for us trying to break this down a little bit and unpack it. So especially specifically, I, I want to also acknowledge the differences in Canada and the U.S., especially what's going on right now, where half your country is divided. It is, the division is polarizing. So if we were to take a microcosm of that division and go to your team an NCAA division one team and say, okay, here's a team. We're going to create a culture. This is the culture. This is the standard that coach holds. And, you know, I'm going to come out as gay and we're going to have a discussion about it. Other people might come out as gay. Other people, you know, there's, we don't stand um, and tolerate any racial, racial slurs on our team, you know, whatever those, norms and expectations and standards are. So you were saying earlier that if they don't adhere to that, maybe they don't fit on the team. And I'm thinking to myself right now, then possibly you're going to have to fire half your team. Well, you know, certainly if, again, that's a coach's decision. If, if I'm a poor leader and I can't get the movable middle to align with high standards and be able to support why it's going to be to our benefit and why it's the right thing, then I'm probably a poor leader. And I probably... If I keep kicking off half my team, I'm probably going to lose my job. And I probably should, because at the end of the day, we know there's always going to be extremes. And even within our team, we have a diverse political views on our team and it's an issue. And we will have, have to have those conversations yeah. at the end but of the not day. Just, not just political views, Kirk, though, like those political views then spurn into religious views, racial views, sure, gender sure. views, sexual views. Those, and all, those. all of those all of those divisions are often used to polarize and separate. And the, the issue is with all of those is that we bring a diversity to this team and diversity is our strength. I will say, I mean, th- this is an amazing conversation. When I when I first came out, I was asked by an, a reporter, actually asked by a reporter with Logo TV and said, how do you coach differently now that you're out? And I thought... <laughs> I thought, wow. I'm like, well, first of all, if I would have been a really poor coach before, if I'm coaching differently now because I'm out, because it's, you know, it's not the major part of who I am. But it did, it did make me have this conversation to start to realize, look, I always talk to our team and not about LGBT issues, but about our diversity is our strength. If you're an athlete in athletics, if we are all the same, if we all have the same skill set, we are all power hitters and we all can hit the rise ball but we all have the same weakness. When I go out to face a team, I'm vulnerable. I want to have diversity on my skill sets on my team. I, so diversity is, is a conversation that we have, to, we have to overlay to a lot of things, not just 
the divisive things, right? Mm -hmm. Diversity is also in our talents, in our humor, in, the, in our personalities. What if, if every one of our players on our team just is cranky in the morning and they're just bad in the morning and they're just like, don't talk to me in the morning. I'm like, okay, so note, note to self, don't schedule any morning games, coach, because your team doesn't get, a, you know, I can't do that. I want to make sure that we celebrate our diversity and that we also continue to focus on what are our common, what is our common goal, our common mission? What are the things that we do have in common? You may have different religious beliefs than this person and listen, and we have to respect those and we can have those healthy conversations and realize that there are differences and that's okay. But when we step on the field, we're focused on our initiatives and our goals that are our common goals, not our separate goals. Mm -hmm. So the interesting thing is, is that we teach our athletes to be more authentically themselves and have the courage to be authentically themselves and stand up and be confident in who they are as they're learning, especially at the college age. But at the same time, when we're in the team environment, we say, lose your individual difference environment and stay focused on the team. Mm -hmm. People think that that's a hard sell. And I'm saying it is the easiest sell because right. we can have those really important conversations off the field and they may be awkward conversations and they may kind of create some animosity and some confusion and some kind of uncomfortableness. And that's okay. Let's navigate those conversations, but let's get it out there face to face rather than be talking behind each other's back. Let's let's have these conversations and then respect at the end when we walk out this door that we are still a team and we are focused on our common goals. So I do I think, think it's a life skill. It's a life, you know what, I'll just, I'll finish on this because I want to uh, switch topics a little bit here, but I would say that, that teams around the world need more coaches like you that has this type of a mindset and very uh, welcoming and inclusive. So we're, we're really grateful for that and, and love to chat more about that. But let's go on to this. You made Outsports 2020 Male Hero of the Year. And Joe Recupero wants to talk a little bit more about this award and, and also brought you forward as, as uh, with, with Dan to say, we need to have Kirk on our show. Joe? Thanks, Laurel. Yeah, Kirk, I want to pick up on that. Is uh, We need to celebrate the fact that you won this big award from Outsports Male Hero of the Year for all the work that you do all the, the um, with your organizations. So I want to give you an opportunity to tell us what led to the organizations that you started forming. Talk a little bit about them, because that's actually how we connected you yeah. and me through the various organizations as well. Yeah, so I, I think... Again, I think you can kind of understand where my, I'm a connector by nature and I'm about connecting and empowerment. So really when I came out in, in 2005, I had no idea that there were so many people out there in sports that were uh, in the same boat as I was. And this is what is still out there, right? You think you're the only one. Um, but, and this was before social media. So I got so many emails and anonymous emails and I got handwritten notes from people that were working in professional sports and collegiate sports. And it was overwhelming. And I was really obstinate to be called the gay coach in the beginning. I just, I hated it. I'm like, quit calling me the gay coach. I'm a coach that happens to be gay, but look at my record. This, we just won a game and you want to know about, you know, my sexuality. Like it's, they're two different things. So I was really resistant to it. But what I really learned, and this is what it leads to, is that that visibility really made a huge difference. And when I could then start to realize, man, I need to get these people that all feel like they're on an island alone together in a common space. And uh, it ended to be, Facebook was just launching out and just started to go off. And it, it really led to creating this Facebook network that was for closeted and uh, LGBT coaches. 
and it was private and, you know, it was a very safe space. And, um, you know, we started to see the same thing start to happen with athletes and student athletes wanted to do the same kind of a thing. So I said, great, let's, let's build it. And both those groups have exploded uh, well over a thousand members, both of them this year. And, and they're huge, huge numbers. And we're just growing exponentially. It's been great. So really the passion for me was connecting people that thought they were alone. And what we truly saw, we saw more people feel empowered to actually come out, to be more authentic, which then creates a positive loop cycle, which then that's more visibility, which then leads to more people feeling more comfortable. And it's a positive loop cycle. Um, but it starts with visibility, right? It starts with authenticity. And that's really what um, really drove me to kind of get those groups going. And, and the response has been amazing. I, I will tell another quick story. So Sports Equality Foundation, we decided to, with TikTok and uh, to have a TikTok page. And I know nothing about TikTok at all, was actually resistant to it. And I'm like, they pulled me into it. I'm like, all these young athletes are like, coach, we got to be on TikTok. We got to be on TikTok. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to do a dancing video. Like, no, I'm not into it. And they said, no, look, what you don't understand is that it's this generation of high school and collegiate athletes or people in general, this is their form of communication. And there's an ability for these individuals to be anonymous and follow people anonymously. And I'm like, well, that seems a little dangerous to me. And he said, no, it actually is really empowering. So there are some of our athletes that have, when they were closeted, had closeted athlete accounts and they had 60,000 followers. Like, okay, who are these people? Like, where is this all coming from? So we launched on Monday, hopeful to be a, make it to a thousand members in a month. Well, Monday came along, we had a nice video. Tuesday came along, a nice video. All of a sudden, Friday came along. One of our members who was closeted, a high school lacrosse player, decided that he's gonna come out on the TikTok. He's like, he's ready, he's, you know, he's comfortable. So he does his video and comes out. We posted on Saturday. It goes about 300,000 followers and still growing in the last two days since Saturday, <laughs> it, unbelievable. And we are now over, like it's close to 5,000 followers um, on this site that is all about just visibility for athletes, um, mm. sharing stories. So to me, this is about our ability to be visible to a whole new audience. And we've added so many people, division one football players, um, other athletes, the basketball players, like all these other sport athletes that are, have been out on their teams, they just haven't been visible. And they're, they're screaming to be authentic. So it's been really exciting. That's great. I have one more question um, before we probably turn it over to Dan with the rapid fire. But I have one more question I just want to finish with is what do you see as the difference between being an advocate or an activist? And in all kinds of social justice issues, this kind of comes up. And I mean, I'll tell you, I tend to think of them as the same. How would you define them or differentiate them? Yeah, I, I, this is an interesting question. I, again, I really struggled with being labeled as an LGBT activist. And I do think that they're very different. Um, but again, it's all semantics, it's words, right? So to me, I think advocacy is where I, I felt comfortable being somebody that was advocating for others and advocating for the right moves. An activist, um, I think in my mind, sometimes feels like that can be more aggressive and more controversial and more trying to right, stir the pot. At the end of the day, we all want to get to the conversation and have a good, healthy conversation. But for me, I love being an advocate because I'm advocating for what I think is truly right and is what is powerful for our athletes to be their best version of themselves. Um, I don't need to activate anything. It's there. I need to advocate for them and make sure I elevate them. Um, but many people have called me an activist, so 
um, it is what it is. I'll take it. <laughs> Great. I'm going to toss it over to Dan. And he's got his segment on rapid fire. And then we'll we'll, we'll finish up after that with any remaining questions or anything. Thanks. Kurt. Okay. Hey, thanks, Joe. And, uh, you know, we were talking with Louise a little earlier about teeing him up, maybe throwing him some curveballs and BP so he could uh, suffer through a little bit of failure before going, going yard. But Louise did have a question for you. Why don't you come on in, Louise, and ask away? It's not anything related to what we're talking about. So, like, I don't well, know. Just oh, okay. Before, I, I was wondering if Mike Trout is wasted at the Angels. <laughs> I totally agree. Do you I think totally so? Agree. Okay. Well, I mean, I, the other day, um, he is he is probably the greatest player out there in the in the game of baseball, and that's pretty pretty clear. He's he's got a good handle on that. Um, but again, do you want to be the best player and never win a title, or do you want to be a part of something that wins? For me, I would have a hard time being in that situation. For him, I don't begrudge him, but yeah, you know, I I think uh, it would be interesting to see how he would flourish in a situation where he was in a pennant chase or a, a real run for a, a world series. Cause like my first baseball game, it was like the angels versus the Mariners in Seattle. And like, I don't know, it, the, the ball comes off the bat different. Like he yeah. hit a home run there and everyone just was like, you know? Yeah. I, I think, I think the amazing thing, and this is a cool thing. An amazing thing is to see an elite level athlete with unbelievable skills and then put them in the highest pressure moments. Right. That is the most amazing thing. And that's the revealing thing to me about character and, and talent. And so to me, I think we've yet to see truly if Mike Trout really is the athlete that we believe he is physically, because he hasn't been yet in that challenge yet. What a great point. You know, getting a chance to see him do it on the highest stage, and we haven't yet. Now, it's certainly not from the Angels' lack of trying in terms of spending the money to try to put the team, but... As we know in, in professional sports and in baseball, you can it's not money that buys championships. I, I do work closely with the Dodgers here in LA, but I do have a lot of friends that work at the Angels. So I'm not trying to downplay the Angels, but yes, Mike is a an amazing talent that has yet to be really in a chance to win a net uh, World Series title. Awesome stuff. Well, Louise, thanks for sharing that. And uh, we'll we'll certainly be watching Mike Trout. And he's got uh, I think he's still got a few years left on that multi, multi-million dollar contract. So we'll, we'll be following along that Hall of Fame career for sure. I think just um, while we get into rapid fire quickly here. Um, so what this is, uh, Coach, is an opportunity for me to ask you questions. And you, the first thing that comes to your mind, kind of generally speaking, five words or less. Okay, right? um, I'll try. Which you can tell I talk to talk. So it's going to be tough for me. I like to talk. So yeah. I'm going to start this off. I'm going to do a bit of a reveal because it's funny. I haven't worn this particular shirt in a while. And it was the very words that you shared with us earlier today. This is actually from the Canadian Football League, a shirt that they released a few years ago to celebrate the diversity in the Canadian game. Uh, and we are, you know, great friends of yours and friends of your mission and what we're all trying to do, which is to create a diverse and inclusive environment for our students, for our athletes, for our world that we live in. So I see you have be true on your shirt. I've got diversity as strength on mine, but what's your personal catchphrase for life? Well, you know, integrity matters. And I think that that's, that's the one thing that I think really has always resonated. Compassion or um, sorry, passion and integrity are my two words. Beautiful. 
Hey, so who is the person who's inspired you the most in your life? Oh, there's been many, but certainly my sister um, as an athlete. Um, people like Billy Bean and, and Dave Copay um, have always been great inspirations for me. Excellent. Hey, just curious as a coach uh, or as a person, uh, you know, in your vocation, in your life, what skill do you rely on the most day in and day out? What's your go-to? Um, my ability to communicate and, and bring people together. What were your first thoughts? What was the first thing going through your head after winning the national title in 2019? Uh, well, I can't, probably can't say the first word out loud, um, but I think it's, it was just relief. Like, it's why I came back to UCLA. So it was just like, yes, relief. We did it. We're there. That's crazy. I thought you were going to say I'm going to Disney World, but you know, <laughs> that would have been a good one yeah. anyway, from California. That's um, just down the road. So it's not really that big a deal. Well, Disney World actually is across the country. but yeah. That's true. <laughs> um, hey, what are you most looking forward to seeing during the softball comeback at the Olympics in Tokyo? God willing. Yeah. You know, um, I, I just I'm so excited to, for the the world to see some of these amazing athletes um, on the, on that stage. So I'm really, I'm really excited for that. And then finally, and it's interesting you talk about this world and, and the world stage. We had a guest, uh, an NYU professor, David Hollander, who joined us earlier and his uh, proclamation was that basketball has the opportunity to change the world. So my question, my final one to you is how does the game of softball, of women's softball, have the opportunity to change the world for the better? Well, I will say this. I believe sports can change the world. And I don't think it's limited to any one sport. I think sport is a unifier. It's a culture. It's a climate. And I think sports can always be the leader at changing culture in the real world. Amazing. And, you know, with great leadership from the likes of yourself, it, it emboldens future leaders and the chance, as you said, to unify through sport. That's our rapid fire with Coach Kirk Walker. Thanks for taking the time. Laurel, back to you. Great. Thank you, Dan. That's excellent. And thank you so much, Kirk. We're thrilled to have the Outsports uh, 2020 Male Hero of the Year here tonight. And just, uh, you know, moving forward also as some of us here who do, who are advocating or activating, um, I think the one thing with activism is, and I always, maybe I, I'm just realizing, I'm like, am I a devil's, uh, what is that thing called? Like yeah, advocate? I, am I a devil's advocate? <laughs> I think you might be a devil's activist, maybe. Activist, I yeah, I might yeah, be a devil's, a devil's activist. Okay. <laughs> I just had a moment here because I seem to- Own it. I can't, be I'm not own it. I, I'm not, I, I'm thinking tonight, I don't even want to come off as challenging at all because I happen to agree with a lot of things that you're saying. It's just that I like to look at all, I try, I, I can't help myself. I want to look at all sides of things. The, um, cause I do think that you actually are both and there's no negative connotation to activism. You actually, in our eyes, and I'm sure a lot of eyes of those that have coached you or those that see you as a leader. And of course, obviously the, the out sports group as well is that, you know, you are, bringing change and you're impacting, you're not just using your voice to advocate on others. And I think that is the differentiation. And, and so we're just so pleased that we are able to talk to somebody and have these types of conversations and dialogue on our show, because we do want to break this down and really understand how we can 
have a voice for, and I'm going to go back to closing this off with it being Martin Luther King Day, that ultimately at the end of the day, what we're all fighting for is equal civil rights. So of course, you know, I, I don't want to draw too much of a comparison, obviously, but these are humanitarian issues. This is conversation that needs to be had had every single day. It needs mm-hmm. to become, in my opinion, and I'm sure I would speak on behalf of uh, my colleagues and the students here, that this is the norm. So that, you know, as you said, when you came out, you're being your authentic self and that that more athletes, because the, the picture that it was painted here, and I just absolutely, your attitude and your energy is so incredibly contagious and your positivity is so contagious. And at the same time, what we're seeing too, is that the, the change is so slow. And so there are, we need, and we encourage, and we wish, and we only hope to desire that more, more student athletes will come out or in professional sports will come out. And this is still not the case. So again, as I said, if you're going to be advocating and uh, speaking out and using your voice, then hopefully that's also going to have impact on your athletes, on your teams, on your colleagues, and of course, um, globally. So we're really hopeful for that. But listen, thank you so much for joining Sport Talks with Sport Profs. I'd like to thank Kirk Walker, our um, special guest tonight, as well as Prof Joe Dan, Coach Berlin, Chelsea Burnout, and I also see some other students that are here. We will be posting this podcast on Thursday on Sport Talks on Apple and on Spotify and Anchor and and all of the above. So thank you and have a good night, everybody. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Kurt, thank you. Thank you.